this morning from Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be imposed for, impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. It's good to be with you again. I'm Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the primary pastor down at our, our Palo site, and I'll be going there right after we do this wonderful thing. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that we can be together this morning, gathered as your people in this place, under your rule. Father, we thank you for the beautiful day that you have made, that you have gifted us with knowledge of the gospel that sets us free. Father, we pray for everyone here, those who are rejoicing and those who are mourning. Father, we pray that you would make yourself truly known to them here today. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> so, uh, for those of you who don't know, and that's probably very few of you, I didn't, wasn't always a pastor. Uh, I had a whole other career. Uh, I was a sales manager for a company that sold process equipment to chemical plants. And in such job, I traveled a great deal all over the country, visiting various companies, visiting our vendors. And so when I went into ministry, I did not have a vision of me basically traveling ever. And I travel as much now as I used to. I go to various trainings, uh, I go to conferences, occasionally I'm asked to speak at places. You know, this year I've been to New York City, uh, let's see, I've been to Grand Rapids a couple times, I've been to San Diego to do a wedding, uh, next month I'll be going to Boston to do the installation of the person who used to be our associate pastor in Iowa City, he has his own church now. Uh, and so I'm going there to be a part of that, which is really exciting. And one of the things that I enjoy when, when I'm flying, as much as I hate it, I'm always afraid that we're going to crash uh, because I'm a sovereignty of God guy. <laughs> but when, you, when you're coming into a city and you see the skyline of the city and you're like, wow, look at how cool and amazing that is. The skyline of New York City is, is beautiful. The skyline of San Diego is beautiful. The Chicago skyline, have you ever taken the architectural tour 
uh, of Chicago. Yeah, that's, it's amazing. Like the, the beauty of the architecture in some of these cities is fantastic. And then we come to our passage today. And it has this line in it. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. What? I mean, look, look at what that says. So what we're talking about here is what they've built, the, the city. And somehow this, this phrase comes out. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. What, what's God upset about here? Is God upset about cultures flourishing? He doesn't like that. He's God is opposed somehow to cultures flourishing. Maybe, maybe God's opposed to people communicating with each other. God doesn't like that. I don't like it when people have one language and they're able to communicate. I'm, I'm God, I'm opposed to that. What's going on there? Maybe he's opposed to people collaborating with each other. Here you have a group of people. They're working together to build nice things. Somehow, maybe, maybe God is opposed to people collaborating. Maybe God's opposed to people living in beautiful cities. Because that's what they're doing here. They're building a beautiful city. And yet God seems to be somehow upset about what's, what's going on here. Maybe God's just upset about people making technological and creative achievements. They're using bricks and mortar to build things. Maybe that's what has set God off. So as you look at the passage, you think to yourself, what exactly is going on that has got God so upset about what's happening? People are communicating and collaborating and they're building great things, and yet God seems very upset about it. He's so upset about it that he makes a point to make sure that they can't continue doing what they're doing. So what are we supposed to make of that? How are we supposed to understand what's happening here in this story of the Tower of Babel, which we know we've learned, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard this story probably a hundred times. What's going on? Why is God so upset? So what we've been talking about in this sermon series is what does it mean to be God's people in God's place under God's rule? And we started last week talking about life in the garden. And in the garden, we had God's people in God's place under God's rule. And everything was as it was supposed to be. Man had a wonderful job. He had a mission to do. He was over all of this, man and woman together, they were in relationship with each other, they were in relationship with God, it was wonderful. And we know how that ended. We know that man decided he didn't want to listen to God when God said, you can do whatever you want. There's just this one small thing that I'm saying it's not going to be good for you, it's not for your best, and man decided, no, I, I, actually I, I think that's not true, I, I need to have that. And so we have the fall and we have the expulsion from the garden. We have sin entering the world. And so how do we understand this passage? So what we have to do to kind of keep in focus God's, God's people and God's place under God's rule is look at what is happening in Genesis 11 
through the lens of what happened in Genesis 1, 2, 3, and all the way through. So what's happened in Genesis 9 and 10 is we've been given a genealogy. For some reason, we skip over this. How many people, when you read your Bibles, you like to skip over the genealogies when they're two chapters long because they're long and boring? Come on. That's right. We skip them because they're long and boring. There's a bunch of names, and what does that matter? Well, it matters a lot if you're trying to tell the story of God's people and God's place under God's rule. So in Genesis 10, what we have been told is that Noah, so you remember the flood, Noah has survived the flood, he's passed through the flood, and he has children. He has Japheth, Shem, and Ham. Now what's important here is that Shem's legacy is Abraham. And then beyond Abraham, there's this legacy of Jesus. But the author doesn't want to focus right now on Shem. He wants to focus on Ham. And so if you go back and you look at the genealogy in Genesis chapter 10, you'll see this. The sons of Ham are Cush, Egypt. Hmm, I wonder if Egypt will be an important character in the rest of the story. Maybe, but I don't know. Put and Canaan. I wonder if Canaan's going to be an important part of the story later. Who knows? It's just a genealogy. Cush fathered Nimrod, and Nimrod was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Erech, Akkad, and uh, Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Hmm, that sounds like important information there. In the genealogy of Ham, of Ham, there seems to be the seeds of discords with God's people later on. So how do we understand Genesis 11? We understand Genesis 11 that what the author is trying to communicate here is a picture of what happens when we get off track and we step outside of the plan to be God's people in God's place under God's rule, and so we have this story of the descendants of Ham, and specifically, what Nimrod has been up to. So our biblical tradition, extra-biblical, it comes to us from, from Hebrew cultures and from Sumerian literature, is that there was a man named Nimrod who is attested to outside of this text that he really and truly existed, and that he built these great cities in the, in the plain of Shinar, including this city of Babel. So again, I ask, what is this about? The way we should understand this is that this is telling a story of how far man has moved in a very short period of time from being God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, to the place where this happens. This is somehow to be understood as a marker of kind of the high point of what has happened in the fall of mankind. And what are they doing? They're trying to make a name for themselves. That's what it says. Let's make a name for ourselves. And so we say, do we have anything in common at all with the people of Babel? And the answer 
is, if you're like me, yes. Because every once in a while, I find myself to be more motivated in my life, in what I'm doing, and what I'm about. I tend to be more motivated by my desire for self-exaltation, for promoting myself, for making sure that I am remembered, for making sure that I have some kind of legacy, for making sure that people are noticing me than I do for participating in what God's mission is. And the hard thing about that is that as I embrace kind of this desire to exalt myself, to put myself forward, to advance myself, it always comes at the expense of my involvement and commitment to advancing God's mission. Whenever I'm more, more concerned about exalting myself, I'm always less concerned about exalting God. And so that's what this is about. It's what it's always been about. It's what it was about in Eden. What was the temptation that Adam and Eve were given? Don't you want to be like God? See, God's withholding from you the ability to be like Him. You should want to be like Him. He's withholding it from you. You will be better. You will be able to exalt yourselves up to His level. He's holding you back. And man went, yeah. Yeah, I don't like that. I want to exalt myself. It, it's why we left Eden. So this whole thing is a picture of, of where that ends. Because remember, God's mission is to be God's people in God's place under God's rule. And in Genesis 11, this is whole thing has collapsed. So what are we supposed to learn? What is this teaching us? So what I want to do is kind of move fairly quickly through kind of three aspects of this, and then I want to really talk about how does the gospel even inform us all the way back in Genesis 11. So the first thing I want to draw out is that as God's people in God's place under God's rule, our culture is supposed to exalt God. So look at what's happening here in Genesis 11, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now the whole earth, and you could translate this without any doing any harm to the passage or the truth of Scripture, as saying the whole region or the whole land, because the Hebrew word here can mean a whole globe-encompassing statement or a whole region. Don't think you lose anything by saying this whole region had one language, because here's what the purpose is. The purpose is to focus on the fact that these people had, they were one people and they had one language and they didn't want to be scattered. That's why they're doing this. The most important thing to these people was staying one identifiable people in one place with one language and they don't want to have to go anywhere else. Their primary motivation at this point for their culture is cultural preservation not engaging in the mission of God, which was to fill the earth with his glory. Look at what it says. And they found a plain, and they settled there, and they say, lest we be scattered. 
The motivation for doing this is let's stay here. Let's continue to be the same people with the same language. And let's not be so concerned about what God said we were supposed to do, which was to fill the earth with his glory. How does this relevant to us here in Hinsdale? Cultural preservation. Making sure that we are able to worship in a place that welcomes every single person. That's our goal. Right? We want to have every tongue and tribe and nation represented here, don't we? Don't we? Don't we want to have every tongue and tribe and nation represented living next door to us? Regardless of kind of where they are economically? Regardless of what they may or may not wear on their head? Regardless of how high or low they may wear their pants? That's what we want. We want to look this way. We want every tongue and tribe and nation to look this way. Did you see what I just said? Every, as long as every tongue and tribe and nation looks the way we look, makes me feel good and culturally secure, I'm pretty good. I'm less good when I'm a little concerned that my culture is not going to look the way that it's always looked. Our denomination, and we have maybe perhaps talked about this a little bit, is a wonderful denomination that holds to the truths of Scripture. In fact, in 1973, our denomination broke away from the larger Presbyterian denomination. And the message that was communicated was this is really the only thing motivating this is an adherence to doctrinal truth. What we didn't say was that the PCA was a largely white southern denomination who were very concerned about Scripture and weren't so interested in policies of desegregation in the South. And so they allowed some of their churches to maybe host meetings of people who wore white sheets at night. And we had to repent of this at our last General Assembly. Even, even as God's people and God's place under God's rule, this kind of desire to keep a culture together, to keep a culture pure, creeps in. And, and you're even able to try to say, we're doing this for the, for the, for the, we're doing this for the best. Like, we're pursuing righteousness. And yet, here we go, where all of a sudden the primary mission becomes cultural preservation, not filling the earth with the glory of God and being God's people under, in God's place under God's rule. But what does it look like for a culture to exalt God? It doesn't mean that it has to look ethnically the same. It doesn't mean that it has to look economically the same. It means that a people are living together as God's people, caring for each other's neighbors, caring for the widows and orphans, are seeking to worship God in a true and a right way. That's what it means for a culture to exalt God. Everything else is just extra stuff. And it's not just about a culture exalting God, it's about our technology exalting God. And they said to one another, come, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. 
And they said, come, let us build a city for ourselves with a tower to the top of its heavens. Is God opposed in some way to engineering and the trades and the good gifts that he gives to people? Of course he's not. Of course God gifts people. In in this room, there are people with gifts that I can't possibly imagine being able to do to design clean water purification systems for people in Haiti. I don't even know the first thing about reverse osmosis. I could sell you some instruments to measure it and make sure it's working, and I could make some money off that, but I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to design nuclear reactors that don't have a spontaneous meltdown that, you know, kills everybody. I don't know how to design a building that, you know, like Trump Tower or the Sears Tower. They can rename the Sears Tower whatever they want. It's always going to be the Sears Tower for me. So if you don't know what the Sears Tower is, ask your older neighbor and they will explain to you that it's the big tall building downtown that, you know, looks like a bunch of podium stacked together. It's always going to be the Sears Tower. Is God opposed to that? No, of course not. Did God not see, oh, when I created man, I didn't see them ever figuring out how to make bricks and mortar. Doggone those people. No, he gifted them with brains. He wanted them to flourish. On Friday, I went down to the University of Chicago Medical Center. I went there to visit one of the uh, new congregants that we have in Palos. His name is Refugio Padilla. And when we went down there, uh, you know, Refugio had to have some tests. And the tests involved an ultrasonic-tipped endoscope. So you put an ultrasonic camera on the tip of an endoscope and, you know, down you go and you look around. And we were pretty sure that what was going to happen is a doctor was going to come back and say, we, you have stage 4 cancer. Because that's what everybody went to the hospital thinking was going to happen. But because of the ultrasonic endoscope, which I do not know how to design, but God gifted somebody to do, when she came back, she said, look, I'm just going to cut right to the chase. You have got the biggest gallstone I have ever seen. And you're going to, you know, in two weeks, you're not going to have a gallbladder. So you should have a party for it because it's, it's leaving. <laughs> <laughs> and it ain't coming back. And, you know, it's possible that you may have some small amount of cancer that I can't see through my ultrasonic endoscope. But... I'm not that concerned anymore. You know what we used to have to do? Cut you open, open it up, look around inside, and now we do this. Praise God from whom all blessings flow that God has gifted people with the ability to use technology for the flourishing of society, for the, for the care of God's people. Is this not amazing? That God has gifted people in this way? That this is what we're able to do and what we're able to experience? God's not upset about the use of technology. He's upset about when we don't want to give him credit for it. When we think it's about us. When we use our technology to exalt ourselves. And look at what he even says. There's this little phrase in here in verse 7. No matter what technological advancement we ever make, this is always going to be God's response to it. 
Remember, here's what their intent is. Let's make a tower so big that it goes up and touches the heavens. And in verse 7, we have this little phrase, come, let us go down. That the greatest thing we could ever do, the distance between what we can accomplish and where God is, is always so big that he has to come down. It's just a small phrase, but it reminds us that this is our technology is for the exaltation of God. That our culture exalts God, that our technology exalts God. Why do these things not do that? Because here's the root problem. Our hearts are not inclined to exalting God. This is our struggle. It says in Psalm 72, 19, Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. That's not what's happening here. Let us make a tower. Let us build a building in this place that will touch the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let's exalt ourselves. Look at this, this phrase that happens. Over and over again, what we hear here is, let us make. Let us make a tower. Let us build it this way. Is there another place in the Genesis story from 1 through 11 where we have heard the phrase, let us make? Is that phrase sound familiar like we might have heard the phrase let us make something before see when man says let us make it says let us build a city and a tower to the tops of the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves i think i've heard this phrase let us make before I think it went something like this. Then God said, let us make man in our image. And then he told man, go and fill the earth with my glory. You see what happened here? God wanted us to fill the earth with his glory. And when we hear this language again by Genesis 11, it's let us make something to make ourselves great. Oh man, it is not going well. For mankind. And so when we hear the phrase, there is no end to what they will do, God is not talking about building great things. What he's talking about, there is no end to what they will do to exalt themselves and put themselves off of my mission and onto their mission. There is no end to what they will do. He is not saying there is no end to the great city they will build or the technology they will develop or the collaboration they will have. He is saying there is no end to what they will do to exalt themselves, to make for themselves a great name. There is no end to it. And so I will intervene. Now, let's be honest. If you're here this morning and there is no God then you should disregard basically everything I said and you should run off immediately and devote yourselves to exalting yourselves and doing whatever you can to get ahead because that is all that matters. 
And this is a waste of time. But I absolutely believe that God exists. And if God exists, what this says, what this reminds us is that God does not accept us. He's not pleased when we try to exalt ourselves. That's not what we have to do to be accepted by God, to build great things, to do great things, to make sure we have a legacy. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Because we're Christian people who love the Lord, and we want to serve Him, don't we, here? We want to serve the Lord. So I got some bad news for you. Maybe it's bad news, maybe it's good news, depends. The Lord also does not accept you based on what you do for Him. The Lord does not accept you based on how hard you work for Him, how much glory you try to bring Him. The Lord does not accept you based on that either. Can I get an amen on that? That one's a little harder, isn't it? See, this is the good news of the gospel, is that we're not accepted based on what we do, and we're not accepted based on what we do for God. We're, based, we're accepted based on what God has done for us, that God has set us free from the tyranny of slavery, of having to work to exalt ourselves. God sets us free from that because of Christ. And so now we ask ourselves this question, why in the world would this story, why is this story the one that God wanted to highlight through Moses? Why is he telling this story to a people, so remember when this is written and who it's written to, it's written through Moses to the people of God who've just been rescued from Egypt, where they were slaves building things, great things, to bring glory to a false god. Now we understand why this story of God's people trying to make a name for themselves by building something great is included in this story. Because God is reminding them that this is not what I had for you. What I want from you is to communicate and collaborate and build beautiful cities and achieve great things. To bring glory to the God who rescued you. To the God who rescued you out of Egypt, who, who saved you from the tyranny of fruitlessness of sex, or, I'm sorry, self Exaltation. We'll edit that out, right? <laughs> this is what they've been rescued from. And so, this is the hope of the gospel for us. That we're called to do great things, to build great things, to bring glory to God, and to bring others towards Him, to point others towards God. This is the picture that we're given this morning. So as much as Genesis chapter 11 kind of is this picture of God's people getting off track, I wonder how Genesis 12 might start out. What might we hear from the Lord in Genesis chapter 12, which we'll cover next week? I wonder how Genesis 12 might answer the question about what God intends and how he intends himself to be glorified through his plan to have his people in his place under God's rule. Let's pray. 
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this story that you tell us this morning, this story of your, of your blessing us through the gifts that you give us. And yet, Father, as we read this story, we acknowledge that we, we fall far short, Lord. We are often more concerned with cultural preservation than we are with advancing the mission of God. We are often frightened and insecure when we consider others around us and we are happy with the way things are. And so, Father, we get off mission and we repent for that. Father, we repent that when we have made a great accomplishment in our, in our vocations with our gifts that you have given us, often the first thing we think of is what this will mean for us and not how this is a reflection of how you call us to bring you glory. And so we repent. Father, we repent for the fact that our hearts are so desperately inclined towards ourselves and away from you that we don't realize how far into slavery we have slipped and how you have completely rescued us through Christ Jesus. And for that, Father, we also repent. Father, thank you that you love us enough to rescue us from our sins. In Christ's name, amen. Hear the good news of the gospel. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Hear the good news. In Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.